Welcome, everybody, to the Eyes on Big Podcast, your go-to Big Ten football podcast, brought to you by the Amador Whiskey Company. I'm typically joined by Big Curd. Big Curd is on location right now, a.k.a. he could not make the podcast, but I'm still recording. Why is that? That's because I have a special guest. It's one of my favorite college football follows on Twitter, Kelly Ford. Kelly, thanks for joining the Eyes on Big Podcast. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing well, Greek. No, I appreciate it. This is great. Big fan of you and Kurt's show, so it's a pleasure to be on. Great to have you on. I've had an emotional night. Uh, just got out of Oppenheimer, um, you know, three-hour tour de force of a movie. And I then you walk out in the lobby, Kelly, and then I'm surrounded by uh, 50 adults dressed in pink and blonde wigs from top to bottom going into the Barbie movie. I, I don't know if there's ever a bigger difference. I mean, we've seen the memes all over Twitter. Um, so the, so crazy night. Uh, now we lead it into a podcast for me and you to kind of duke it out a little bit. So so I, I'm going to be in, in emotionally exhausted by the time we get done recording the podcast. I absolutely love it. That's the best time to talk. When you're, uh, when you're on your last legs, that's when your true feelings come out is what I've learned. So this is going to be great. I've had a couple cocktails too, so it should work out perfectly for us. Um, uh, the the theme. This is me talking to the eyes of big listeners now. The theme is is the Greek versus the geek. Okay, and what we're trying to get at here, we're gonna have some fun. Is uh, I'm a little old school. I, I'm kind of using gut feel. I do work a little statistics in, but trends. I'm I'm into. Uh, on the other side, Kelly is more statistically driven i believe uh analytic driven for sure so we kind of wind up i would say very often in the same spot but take two different paths there so that's kind of the podcast we're going to get into before we get into that though kelly tell us how you you know tell us a little bit how the sausage is made and how you come about the the rankings and statistics that you use yeah for sure and i'll just start by saying we dm'd a little bit before this I very much, as you alluded to, use data, use analytics, looking at numbers to try to kind of shape my per perspective of college football, whether that's teams, conferences, the national race, whatever it is, data is a way that I choose to view it and, and go about it. But it's just a starting point. It's really not the end all be all. It is certainly a tool that I think uh, fans, coaches, everybody should be using but it's not the one-stop shop. It doesn't tell the full picture. Nothing out there tells a full picture. We, we have to take many different perspectives and, and approaches into account when you're evaluating a player or a team or a coach or whatever it is. But um, analytics and data is definitely my area of expertise. It's, it's the area I'm most interested in. So a little bit about my numbers. Um, I started a handful of years ago uh, producing some power ratings for FBS college football teams and was doing it, having fun. And my friend said, you need to put this out there for the public. So joined a Twitter or made a Twitter account, joined Twitter and uh, have had fun for the most part uh, doing it for the last four or five years on Twitter. But the way my numbers work is in the preseason, we're really looking at three things. Uh, we're looking at your your recent K forward ratings. Your, uh, so over the last you know three, four years, how has your program done in my power rating set? We're looking at your recent recruiting. Uh, so again, the last three, four years, how well have you recruited um, in terms of bringing talent into your program? And then the third piece, the biggest piece, is the returning production. So from last year's team, how much are you bringing back? How productive were those were those players that you had? And I also now capture the incoming and outgoing transfers in the returning production piece, of course, with the, the one-time free transfer and the increased usage of the transfer portal. Transfers have become a much bigger part of college football in recent years. So if that sounds familiar to, to some listeners out there, it, it probably does. Uh, Bill Connolly employs a very a similar approach with his SP+. And Bill and Brian Fermo, who uh, is the proprietor of FEI, those are really the two guys that I looked up to as I was getting into this space and continue to look up to. They're, they're really the gold standards in, in, in college football predictive analytics, in my opinion. So I really modeled my approach after theirs. Of course, I've incorporated some of my own uh, twists and turns, and I've learned a lot as I've really dug into the numbers myself the last five years or so. But that's what we look at in the preseason. That's how I get to my preseason power ratings, which are up on my website. Um, and then once we get into the season, we start de-weighting 
evaluating and devaluing the preseason component and replacing it with in-season data. And again, for the most part, what we're looking at there is how is your team performing within the quote-unquote predictive aspects of college football? And again, Bill Connolly made the five factors famous a handful of years ago now. Um, that's really the core of my model. Again, I've added in a few things that I've back-tested and, and found to uh, have predictive power um, moving forward. And so um, that's kind of what I do with the numbers. I then am able to generate most deserving resume rankings is what I call them. So it's a way to uh, stack up which teams have achieved the most against their schedule relative to what would be expected of the average top 25 team if that team were to have played that schedule. So I normalize every single team in college football, FBS college football's schedule, and then I can make a uh, apples to apples comparison of who has achieved the most. And that to me is what, you know, the AP poll, the coaches poll, and then ultimately the college football play uh, committee poll. That's what good looking like um, based on what my numbers are saying. We know that's not always the case. The, the numbers disagree with the humans quite a bit. Um, but at the end of the day, the selection committee usually gets it right based on their top four and my top four. So um, I, I find comfort in that, that my most deserving rankings align with the general consensus of college football about which teams are the most deserving at the end of the year. So power ratings, resume rankings, uh, and a little bit of, of other stuff here and there, but that's the majority of what I'm I'm doing on Twitter and, and on my website. That was a fantastic explanation. Um, couple things here. So it does it sounds like the last couple of years, I'm not saying you've had a hundred percent hit rate, but it sounds like who you've arrived at as the top four teams that should get into the college football playoffs has matched up to what the committee has selected. Yeah. So actually it, it actually has been the top four in order, a hundred percent hit rate. Um, since I've been doing the most deserving rankings going back to 2020. So it's only a, a couple of years of data there. Um, but where we do start to see deviations, it has been as early as number five. Um, and we've seen, you know, usually the top 10s about right. I might have a couple of teams flipped here or there. Um, but yeah, the committee, I believe, has done um, a really good job at the end of the year of getting the one through four correct and, and putting those teams in the playoff. I'll be very curious to see. So we got one more year of the four-team playoff. Once we get to 2024 and it goes to 12, I know you got AQs in there, so that's going to take up six Spots. But based on my history here the last few years, like I said, once we get to five, there's been some deviations. I'll be curious to see how well my most deserving rankings match up with the committee's, I guess, top 12 at that point when they're determining the playoff field. And I should say my numbers are not designed to try to predict what the committee's going to do. They're just saying based on the data that's out there and the numbers that I'm using, which um, I have faith in and confidence in, they've proven to be um, pretty accurate over the years. That is what blind resume tests say to take take the logos out, take the history out, take the fan bases out, take the coaches out based on who has accomplished the most on the field at any given year. That's what the most deserving rankings are designed to uh, to, to order. And what's going to be interesting uh, next year is, you know, let's let's be honest, uh, as, as far as, you know, gut gut versus uh, stats or Greek versus geek. I can probably predict the four teams that are going to be in the college football playoff by the end of the year. Uh, I mean, I'm pretty sure I got it last year. What's going to be interesting, though, is I think analytics would play into it even more the next couple of years. Why? Because when you're getting down to teams 8 through 15, you are going to be splitting hairs like crazy on who those teams are that are going to be in. Because obviously the next fight is going to be the unlucky number 13 spot, right? The first team out at 13. And they're going to have a good argument that they could be in front of teams 11 and 12, maybe 9, 10, 11, 12, who knows? That's where probably I would assume analytics are going to come in even more. And there's going to be even more fighting. People act like going to more teams is going to cut the fighting down. I, I think it might ignite it. Even more, long story short, do you see analytics playing into that a, a huge role for those last couple teams in? To, to directly answer your question, yes, I do think as the margins get thinner, right? And they do. And you see that in the power ratings. And you all, you also see it in my most deserving rankings where the, the margin between teams is pretty easy to identify, as you said, the top two, three, four, sometimes five or six teams. The margins get thinner and thinner the farther down the list you go. I think the best example is March Madness. We sit here and talk about the bubble in March Madness with 36 at-large bids. They're out there debating number 35, 36, 37. 
738 in the at-large pool. We're not going down that deep, but the farther down you go, the, the, the thinner it gets. And yes, I do think as you're moving down that list and the margins are getting thinner, you need to use every tool, analytics included, available to you to try to figure out where is that line drawn? Because it's going to be a razor's blade and which team falls on which side of that. It's going to be very interesting every year. You're absolutely right. People say that there's going to be less debate. No way. There is going to be more debate because there are going to be more teams that feel they, quote, deserve to be in the field at 12. Whereas now you're not arguing, hey, we finished eight. Yeah, we probably didn't deserve to be in the 18 field. But if you finish four spots back of 12, you finish 16, I bet you're going to be able to make that argument because those margins are so thin, as we talked about. And I hope I'm trying to be as optimistic as I can with this statement. I hope that means the national media will pay attention to more teams as opposed to the elite of the elite in basically two or three conferences, because that's how it's it's worked out over the last couple of years. Uh, lots of people uh, don't view it that way. You know, there's still a ton of people uh, that don't want to see this expanded to 12 teams. Um, I think I'm firmly now on the fence. I was certainly not into the 12. I, I wasn't in favor of 12 teams somewhat recently. I, I've now moved more towards the center. Probably will wind up liking it once I see, you know, the first uh, uh, game between, uh, what would it be, 12 and 5. Uh, that that will probably be a compelling football game. At least I hope it is. So that'll be interesting to see. Um Kind of staying in the same topic, a little bit different uh, angle here. So uh, a different uh, a podcast that I listen to, um, there is a a guy uh, that is on that podcast, and he is thoroughly analytic uh, to the point where it sort of drives me nuts. Uh, so much weight uh, put on on recruiting rankings, okay? Um, and I'll be honest, we're, we're kind of skipping to the second topic that I think I thought we would hit. We'll come back to the first one. Don't get me wrong. And that's where uh, I, I just, that's where I start to roll my eyes pretty hard, Kelly. Um, not not that this is something we fight about. It's just more, I, I just wonder how different our point of view is on this topic. Nobody in their right mind, Kelly, in, in with regards to rankings or uh, recruiting, excuse me, nobody in their right mind doesn't think that recruiting matters. Okay. Obviously talent accusation, 100% matters in any sport, let alone college football. Um, I, it's just that, you know, for my short period of time in Iowa, a long time ago, you know, leather helmets. Uh, but there was just so many times where I saw guys come in that were highly ranked recruits that were just going to be studs. And they're not, you know, or they're good, but they're not any better than you know, the dude that came from the farm in Iowa that's just a good athlete that nobody knew about. Certainly recruiting rankings have dialed it in. But there's just so much, there's so much more misses, in my opinion, once you get out of those top 70 or 80 players. Nobody is doubting how good and how many draft picks and NFL players come out of those top guys. It's just that most teams don't have access to those guys. So once you get past that, now you're getting into things like coaching, development, coaches that can see players and understand that even though they're, quote unquote, only a, a mid three star, that's somebody that they see developing perfectly into their system and wind up getting the most out of that player. I don't know how Kelly Ford or some of the other anal analytical people, I just, I don't know how you can take that into account. And which would be another way of saying, I don't think you're, you're taking it into account, but I will let you speak on that. Yeah, no, you've raised really great points and I agree with you. And again, I've started at the top by saying analytics, that's kind of my wheelhouse. That's my forte. And yes, I do use weighted four year recruiting averages in my preseason model. I mean, that, that it's proven to be predictive. There's proven predictive power in if a team recruits at a higher level, if team A recruits at a higher level than team B, all else equal, team A is going to be a better team than team B. What we run into in college football is that not all else is equal. And we know that. You are absolutely right, Greek. Coaching plays a huge factor. And I'm thinking of programs like yours. And I, I mean, like Iowa, they're a good example of a team that achieves a higher level 
higher level of success on the football field and they play at a, at a greater clip in terms of predictive power rating through, through that lens, then their recruiting average alone, which suggests Kansas State is another team that comes to mind recently. I mean, the Big 12 champions, they're not in the top 25 of the recruiting rankings every single year. They, do, they bring in players that are right for their school, their program, their culture, their system, their fit. They develop them very, very well. And then they end up being more productive than the, quote, recruiting services. And, and they're, they're pretty darn good at this day and age, especially like you said at the top, right? ESPN's got their top 300. 24-7's got the top 247. Rivals has the top whatever, 300 or whatever it is. You're, they're really dialed in pretty much in that top, you know, 300-ish. And they're going to be misses, of course. But more times than not, they're going to be right. There's a the majority of college football though, FBS college football is, is comprised of players that are not in the top 300. And so if you're treating everybody who's outside of that as the same, that's where you can get yourself into trouble a little bit in terms of trying to project forward, in my opinion. So I agree with you 100% on what you said, while also still agreeing that recruiting, you know, rankings and ratings matter. They do. Uh, stars matter. That's a, that's a big saying, and I agree with it. But at the end of the day, like I said about data and analytics, it is not the end all be all. It is one piece of the puzzle. It's something that I think deserves to be included, and that's why I do. I think it's something that is that has predictive power. Uh, it's, I've back-tested it to prove it. So, yes, it needs to be a part of the model, and it, it, it makes the model better. But, again, that is not the only piece. And I also would never, would never discredit anybody, such as yourself, a former player, who you're much better at, at evaluating a player in a program saying, yep, he's going to be a good fit for this scheme, this coach, this system, whatever it is, than I am. I'm, I'm, that's not my area. That's not what I'm good at. So I think it takes all kinds to make that work. And uh, incorporating as much as we can into the model is only going to make it better. Um, I mean, I think you're over complimenting me there a little bit. I, I would be able to pay very close attention to a few programs, you know, <laughs> that I'm, I'm very much dialed into. And then to actually see it to the level of these coaches, do I'd have to be, you know, at practice and see that stuff. And certainly I don't have access like that. Um, I guess here, here's something I would, I would ask is um, what, what, and, and I didn't mean to make this about Iowa. It's just that it's easy for me to pull from my own memories, you know, to use it as an example, probably a lot of non Iowa fans listen to the podcast, get tired of me using Iowa as an example. We'll be able to use Iowa as a bad example here, probably on a couple other topics as well. Um, but what, what I would say is this is like using, we'll use Kansas state. Okay. Um, or, or, um, Utah, Utah would be another good one. Okay. And then I would compare it to somebody like Texas. All right. Now, ironically, I think, I do think Texas is on the up because I believe their coach is doing a good job right now. Okay. Like this is, I'm actually, I'm treading into waters. I'm, I haven't been in in a long time on Twitter, which is I'm actually kind of backing Texas and that I think they're going to be good this year. That's a dangerous it, game. It Trust is me. A, I, play, I play it every year. It's dangerous. It is a dangerous game, but I will say this. It's the first time I have dove into this pool. Um, with that being said, we've got essentially 10, 12 years of data on Texas before that that shows they are way better recruiters than Utah, but I would fully expect Utah to to lay the smackdown on Texas most of the time they would have played in the last decade. Okay, like I said, a lot closer now. Not that Utah's dropped at all. Um, uh, and I know I'm using two non-Big Ten teams here, but it, I just kind of I'm trying to use the best examples I can. Um, what I what I would ask now then is when you bring the you know analytics and the roster together. And you look and you see that Texas is above Utah. Is there then a Kelly Ford gut, a Kelly Ford tweak that you used in your computer to say, but now I'm going to downgrade Texas because they've proven over and over again they can't develop their talent. And I'm going to upgrade Utah because they've proven over and over again that they can develop the talent to their system. Is there a tweak like that that you do? So to, to answer the question directly, no, there is no manual adjustment. I uh, pr pride myself on keeping the model objective, although it has been brought to my attention recently that subjectivity in and of itself is not bad if you can prove it has predictive power. And so, you know, there's something to that. And it's something definitely for me to consider. What I do do is for programs like Texas and Utah, they tell a story. Every single team 
there tell a story and the data tells a story. If we can, if I can identify trends within the stories, those are things that can be incorporated into the model, whether that's, you know, new inputs or adjusting weights or what have you to the existing model. And we can then use the new and back test on the data that we have. And every single year we get more and more data. So that's better and better for those like me who, who enjoy playing around with the numbers and, and making their own models and we can improve the model. So it, it's not that I'm not paying attention to that. It's that I'm not saying like what you just said, Hey, you know, Utah's proved over and over, even though, for example, they are recruiting at their weighted four year recruiting ranking. And my numbers is number 25. Their weighted four year K forward rating. So how have they, how good have they been on the field is number 10. So they are, they're recruiting at the 25th best in the country and they're playing at the 10th best in the country over the course of the last four years. So that's a really good example. You mentioned Iowa, same thing. Iowa is recruiting at the number 32 team in the country and they're playing in the last four years at number 20 in my, in my power ratings. Kansas state was the other one we mentioned. They're recruiting. This is, this is incredible. They're recruiting at number 51 and their weighted four year recruiting rankings number 24. So those are teams that are certainly outperforming their recruiting rankings. And again, those teams, the data from those teams is telling a story. And believe me when I say I am working behind the scenes to try to identify what are the common themes, what are the threads here that connect these types of teams. And I think I have some ideas. I uh, haven't gotten to the point where I'm able to actually implement back test and then improve the model. But Yes, there is something to that. You are right. But right now, no, there is no subjective bump that I'm doing. And I probably won't for the simple fact of that's the one thing I can lean back on on, on Twitter. People are always like, you hate my team. Why do you have it out for my team? Why do you love Texas, Kelly? I don't. I'm not a Texas fan. The data loves Texas. Therefore, my system loves Texas. But it's nothing about me. And so when people get mad, I say, you know what? These are the numbers. I'm sorry you don't like them. If you'd like to have a rational conversation, I'm down. And it's Twitter, so that doesn't happen. But I get it. Yeah, if there's if there's anything that doesn't happen very often, it's it's <laughs> rational conversation between college football fans and especially rational conversation versus college football fans on Twitter. It's basically non-existent. You can sometimes pull people into DMs and, and have it a little <laughs> bit better there. But out on Twitter, I don't know. Everybody goes nuts. Um, I tell you what, man. Um, if I had set out five, six, seven years ago, whatever, to pull analytical data together on the sport that I love so much, college football. My guess is I would probably arrive at similar, you know, stuff that we would be looking at. I mean, pretty much at some point it, it comes down to roster management and trends, you know. Um, what I would struggle with is not leaning into the trends and the coaching to tweak things. Because if my numbers came out, in 2019 that showed texas was seventh best team i would knock them down just because i i just i'm i i would not be able to accept <laughs> what the data is uh actually i i w when we were when i was watching oppenheimer tonight there was a quote in the movie and i thought i would use it right here it, it's a great it's a great quote in the movie which is theory will only take you so far and that was, you know, played into a, a central part of the movie. And that's where I just think this is, you know, where there just comes to a point where numbers lie and gut has to take over. But I guess that's where the fun is at, you know, with the with the debate with that stuff. A hundred percent. The numbers, like I said, the numbers are, the, are a starting point for me. That's how I shape my perspective on a team conference, whatever. But yes, I, I don't I don't then subject manually. Uh, edit the numbers but my own opinion of the team is not tied only to my numbers i i watch the games i'm observing yeah. i'm seeing things i know these trends so if i'm talking to my friends about you know what team do i like what team do i not i, I say hey you know i got texas power rated i'm making it up. i got texas power rated number seven they're probably not the seventh best team in the country though like i mean i say that you know to people that i'm okay. talking to or on podcast okay. but the numbers are the numbers and that that's my starting point I don't adjust the actual numbers. My opinion, though, certainly fluctuates on teams, deviates from the numbers. Which probably feeds us into another topic we can we can talk about. And we could kind of come back to a couple things uh, we've hit on here. But the schedule difficulty, okay? Um, schedule difficulty and and uh, conference rankings. Whew. You, know what, you know what the deal is there, Kelly, is when you talk about a specific team, 
you're taking a scalpel to attack somebody. Mm -hmm. But when you're doing conference rankings and schedule rankings, you're throwing out a big net of hate (laughs) that that could capture a lot of college football fans, reel them in and really piss them off. And it's dude, it's fun to watch it. That is part of the reason why I wanted to invite you on the podcast, because I've seen you actively engage in these arguments, uh, but you do it in a civil way. You try to keep it civil and good, which is something that I very much appreciate when I see that uh, on Twitter. With that being said, I feel like I need to attack. (laughs) I'm going to attack you a little bit because it's just hard, man. It's hard for me to look at this and, and see the top 10 most difficult schedules with eight of them being from the SEC. It, it, it is just difficult. Um, now, I will say Michigan State at, at nine, okay? Good to see Michigan State in the top 10 because they deserve to because it, it is a very difficult schedule that they have. Um, so I just kind of, you know, selectively went and then uh, um, compared them to Texas A&M, okay? Which Texas A&M you have at... Uh, Help me out here. Six. Okay, so you have three spots ahead than than Michigan State. Okay, Michigan State. Now they they don't start out too tough with Central Michigan and and Richmond. Okay, so so no argument there as far as they should be able to roll into a two and zero schedule. But boy, does it get difficult after that? Washington. I mean, this is a hot Washington team. Maryland is playing good football at Kinnick. Okay, Michigan at Minnesota. Nebraska at Ohio State, Indiana not so tough, and then Penn State. I mean, when you're looking at Washington, Maryland, Iowa, Michigan at Minnesota, Nebraska at Ohio State, Penn State, that is a, a extremely difficult schedule. So you would agree with that. I mean, obviously you have them ninth. Then I look at Texas A&M, okay? Again, I'm not saying this is a pushover. It's just hard for me to see these teams I, I would say closer to even, and and honestly, I would edge toward Michigan State being tougher. So obviously at LSU, very difficult at Tennessee. Those are very difficult games. But New Mexico, UL Monroe, Abilene Christian, and then they get the off week with Abilene Christian before LSU. That is three extremely easy cupcakes with Miami, the U, not being a especially tough power five team. I don't know. Then I mean, it, I, I skipped over Alabama. I'm sorry, but Alabama, Tennessee, LSU. So nobody's saying those three teams aren't tough. Those three teams are are extremely tough. But I would put the top three in the SEC up against the top three in the Big Ten. I think they're very very similar for for how difficult they are. But then once you parse through the rest of the schedule, Washington, you know, um, at Minnesota, at Iowa, to me, it's as difficult, if not more difficult, than what Texas A&M has. So here's here's what I'll say because I don't I don't necessarily disagree with the with the points you're making. I will also say if, if you're looking at the schedule difficulty graphic that I have up on the website, it's ordered by a number that I'm going to explain here in a second. But Michigan State's number is eight point three two. Texas A&M's is eight point one seven. So they're separated by what is that point one five? Okay. So that difference of that difference of point one five. Here's what that stands for. Here's how I do schedule difficulty because. To be fair, there's actually a couple different ways that you can that you can measure schedule difficulty or strength of schedule, which if you will, which I don't uh, enjoy that phrase. That's why I say schedule difficulty. Um, but there's a few different ways you can do it. You can talk about how difficult is it for a team to go 12 and 0 against their schedule. That's that's one thing because that means that means that your hardest game is definitely factored in as much as anything else. Versus, what have you said? How difficult is it to go bowling against your okay, schedule? Okay. Now you could have six impossible games and six cupcake games, and it's actually pretty easy to go bowling against your All schedule because right. you got the easy one. So there's different thresholds by which you can measure schedule difficulty. What I decided to do is say, okay, let's look at each FBS team's schedule through the lens of the average top 25 team. So what I've done is based on you know the last 10 years of K4 power ratings. What's been the average top 25 teams power rating? Okay, that number is X. They are X number of X number of points per game better than the average college football team. Okay, great. So that is the baseline. That's that's what we're all that's the denominator. That's how we're viewing every single schedule. So from the perspective of the average top 25 team, 
how many games would that team be expected to win against every single team's schedule gotcha. in the country, including gotcha. Michigan State, including Texas A&M? That's how I get to these numbers. So the average top 25 team, by my, by my preseason numbers, would be expected to win 8.17 games against Texas A&M schedule. They'd be expected to win 8.32 games against Michigan State's. So that's a very, very small difference. And again, we're talking about number six Absolutely. or number nine. Okay. We talked about the thin margins earlier about you know trying to separate. It, it, it shows up here too. They're very thin. And I would also agree with you. My last point that that's how it's generated. That's how it's that's how it's derived. So if, if we want to nitpick and flip a couple spots, I'm not going to throw. I'm not going to say you can't do that. Like these are very close. I will agree with you and, and, and go as far as to say Michigan State's top three games are actually more difficult by my numbers, than okay. Texas A&M top three. If you look at the power rating of those opponents, you're talking for Michigan State, you're talking about most difficult at Ohio State, who I have power rated number two. That's a nearly impossible game. It's very, very difficult for any team, Michigan State included. The next game, you're home against number four power rated Michigan. Okay, at least you're at home. Like that's That gives you something. And again, I'm not accounting for this is Michigan, Michigan State, I know, right? So that too. that's a rivalry. There's yeah. way more on the line than the numbers see there. And there's a history in that game. And then you got a neutral site. Michigan State actually lost their home game with the Big Ten television deal. They're still playing it in Detroit, I think. But it's actually technically classified as a neutral site now against power-rated number nine, Penn State. So you got number two, number four, number nine. Whereas Texas A&M, they've got Alabama at three, LSU at five, which is on the road. That's a really tough one. And then Tennessee on the road at number 11. So if you're looking at the top three, Absolutely, Michigan State's there. Where the difference comes in is really in that middle. You know, AM is playing Arkansas. They're playing Ole Miss. They're playing Mississippi State. They're playing South Carolina. They're playing Auburn. And then you and Miami. And then you mentioned some of the cupcakes on there. Michigan State, by my numbers, doesn't quite have that middle strength relative hmm. to AM, but they still come out number nine. So it's a really, really tough schedule for the Spartans. See, I that I guess that's something the last point you made, I would take exception with that okay we could talk about just real quick but so you you gave props to michigan state and their schedule for the top three teams okay then you just said the middle not so much so so to me the middle is essentially the next five teams or so okay in michigan state schedule which would be washington at iowa uh at minnesota i think those are i think i mean washington for sure is a tough game at Iowa, you know, again, I don't want to sound like a homer, but I, 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 I think the word has gotten out that going into Kinnick and winning is not an easy thing to do. The other thing I, I, I would ask this: at Minnesota, after playing Michigan, is there any kind of factor with that type of stuff when you, you're you're able to parse out and heal up your team when when Texas A and M. Sure, they play a pretty tough Mississippi State team, don't get me wrong, but then they play Abilene Christian. Like, I guess for me, and, and this is what a lot of Big Ten fans and, and, and also non-Big Ten fans, there's a team I'm going to bring up that's not in at the SEC or Big Ten as well. When you get the four auto wins or, or at least three and a half auto wins that the SEC is handed almost every single team, it is hard for me to see these SEC teams, so many of them up there, when literally a third of their schedule is a roll out your helmet, get the W type of deal. So um, there is no, it's a great point. There is no schedule nuance component. And we talk about, I, I talk about this all the time. You know, who are you playing before a certain team, after a certain team? Where's your buy fall? That's all the subjective stuff that the viewers who are looking at my graphics need to digest and interpret on their own. The numbers do not mm. account for that. I, I, Arkansas, I know we're talk, supposed to talk Big Ten here, but Arkansas sure. is a great example. Arkansas has, if I go to their schedule really quickly, they've got an absolutely brutal stretch from week four to week seven. They go at LSU. They're a neutral side against Texas A&M. They go to, at Ole Miss, and they go at Alabama. That's four straight weeks. There's no, no buy-in there. They're not going back to Arkansas for any of those games. At LSU, neutral side A&M, at Ole Miss, at Alabama. My numbers are viewing each of those games independently, and trust me, all those games are tough by by my numbers. But they don't see that cumulative effect of yes. week after week on the road against those teams, and that's a real thing. A hundred percent, that's a real thing. So no, my numbers don't see that. If we go back to 
A&M, you're talking about the Abilene Christian game sandwich between Mississippi State and Ole Miss, whereas – or, sorry, Mississippi State and LSU, whereas for Michigan State, you know, they've got uh, they've got Minnesota between Michigan and then Nebraska. To go back to the point about the middle five, though, again, we're splitting hairs. We're talking about .15 games over a 12-game schedule. That is that is such a fine line that I, I'm not going to argue if you want to say Michigan State's got more, more difficult. I, I won't. It's close enough. It's within the margin of error. I'm good. But to to rationalize where I am, I, I'll give you Washington. Yep. They got, they got them power rated number 18. Iowa, power rated number 26. Minnesota, power rated number 31. Those are three really, really tough opponents. Your next one by my numbers is Maryland at 46 and then Nebraska at 50. Whereas yeah. if you go to A&M, after their top three that are 3, 5, and 11, you got at Ole Miss is number 17. And then here's where they really get bunched up. I've got Auburn, number 29, Arkansas, 30, Mississippi State, 34, South Carolina, 37, Miami, 35. I mean, it's just boom, 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 all the way down the line there. And then, yeah, you have your FCS. Michigan State has one, too. you got New Mexico, but Michigan State's got Central Michigan. I mean, there's not much difference there. Um, and then also on Michigan State schedule, you got Rutgers. And like I, I know it's a Big Ten. And you also got Indiana. Those are two – you want to talk about, you know, chalk them up to wins? I'm not saying Michigan State's going to chalk those up to wins, but a, a, a team of better quality and caliber than Michigan State – and this is not knocking Michigan State. I got them number 45. This right. is a good team. But if you're, if you're a top 25 team and you're looking at Rutgers and Indiana, you're counting those as wins. And so I, that, that's, again, every single game – counts as one twelfth of the schedule. There's no consideration for order of opponent or where the bye week is and all that. I would love to figure out a way to do that. I'm not smart enough to, at least yet. I'll keep playing around with it. But um, every single game counts as one twelfth. And when you look at the 12 aggregate games of A&M, it comes out just slightly, slightly hmm. more difficult yeah. than the 12 aggregate of Michigan State by my numbers. But again, I'm not going to argue if, if we say, you know what, Kelly, I think it's Michigan State. You're close enough. I'll say, I'll give it to you. Interesting. It's a good explanation. Um, and we've kind of we've kind of weaved in and out of this um, uh, of essentially the what's tougher having six nearly unwinnable games and six easy games or 10 moderately hard games. And I've never I mean, I feel like that conversation and, and argument, debate, whatever goes all the way back to my childhood. Uh and that the Big Ten was made fun of uh, way back then. Uh, uh, some by fans that, uh, of the team that's now in the Big Ten, by the way. Um, <laughs> and essentially, uh, you know, what we would say all the time is, but it is a gauntlet that never stops in the Big Ten. There's maybe one team that's bad. Um, the Big Ten now has kind of morphed into uh, the very much elite, a very – you know, very good middle to upper. And then there's, there's three bad teams on the bottom. What, what, what angers me with that is that that's what the, the top conferences have been for years. The big 10 has now achieved that, but boy, now we're going to, we're going to change the topic. Now, now it's, now it's how it's depth of the conference. It's just funny to me as a big 10 fan, how the, how the uh, field goals uh, posts are are moved to use a, a football term there. Um, and I'm going to kind of bring it together here because I'm all over the place, but um, I blame Oppenheimer. Uh, but I, I'm going to use unbelievably. I, I can't believe I'm going to say this team on this podcast, but I'm going to use Iowa State. Okay, surprised not to see Iowa State higher. Why? Okay, first of all, the only like kind of gimme game that I see is Ohio, um, and I'm not sure Ohio's pretty good. You know, like that's not even a bad MAC team right there. Yes, you and I is an FCS team. I can guarantee you, um, Iowa State fans hate to see you and I on the schedule. That that yeah. that is. I, long story short, is I don't see a gimme on this roster or uh, a gimme on this schedule. Excuse me, Iowa being their other you know non conference game, and then it's just Oklahoma State, Oklahoma, TCU, Cincinnati's been up and running, Baylor down, but you, you know, well coached. Kansas is up. BYU is a solid team. Texas, Kansas State to finish. Like, to me, that is a different brand of tough. Certainly, how poorly Iowa State wa- played last year is, is always going to factor into any schedule rankings, which is why 
you typically don't see Michigan and Ohio State and Georgia at the top because they're one of the elite teams. They don't get to play themselves. But, man, that to me, again, kind of looking at some of these other schedules, shocked to see Iowa State down at 25, seems to be a tougher road than a Power 5 team that gets four cupcakes on their schedule. So here's here's what I'll say about Iowa State, and yeah, I love that you're coming to the Cyclones defense here. Didn't think I'd ever. Hear I'm just it. I'm just calling it how I see it. It's not which, so much a defense thing. It's just trying to be as honest on the take as I can, which I love. And again, that's what I pride myself on: being objective, viewing everybody through the same lens, and not playing favorites. Even though, yes, I have favorite college football teams. No one's a massive college football fan without having a favorite college football team. It just doesn't make sense. That doesn't work. So for Iowa State, here's. I'm going to agree with you that they probably don't want to see Northern Iowa on there by the numbers, which again, just when we talk about Michigan, Michigan state, they don't see all the underlying things. My numbers right now, like Iowa state by about 28 points. I mean, they're four touchdown favorites by my numbers against Northern Iowa in week one. Will they win by 28 points? Probably not because I'm not sure that that Iowa state offense is going to score 28 points, but that's what the numbers are favoring them by. Again, let's view it from the data objective and then bring your own subjective flavor to it. But that's what the numbers are saying, and that's what's being computed in schedule difficulty. At Ohio, currently favored by nine points. You're right. Ohio, they're the favorite of the MAC by my numbers. Not a terrible co- – well, not, it's at, not, it's not at a, Ohio, too. I didn't even – They're going to they're, they're going to Peden Stadium. And as somebody who did grad school at Ohio University, I can tell you that on a, on a Maction Tuesday or Wednesday night in November, you don't want to go to Peden. But this is week three. I think Iowa State will be just fine. Um, but people in southeast Ohio will certainly be excited about that one. Those are definitely the two, quote, easiest games on the schedule. And outside of that, their next biggest favorite by my numbers on the whole schedule is their favorite right now by six against Kansas in week 10 by my numbers. So there's really not another gimme. You're right. The problem with that uh, with that approach alone is that we're assuming that Iowa State is projected to be a really, really great team. If a really, really great team doesn't have any projected blowouts on the schedule, then that's going to be a really tough schedule. For me, Iowa State, while their defense should be top 20 unit, the offense has a lot of concerns But for, for me right now coming into this year. I have them power rated number 42. So this is a, you know, below average power five program, just very slightly um, playing in a very difficult conference. Yep, I'll give you that. But if they're a better power rated team, some of these games, some of these lines are going to be inflated a little bit from what we're projecting. And so that to me is, yeah, they're not projected huge favorites in anything, but that has more to do with Iowa State than their opponents because we talked about Northern Iowa. We talked about Ohio. Cincinnati, or Kansas, power rated number 57. BYU, power rated 55. Cincinnati, power rated 54. Oklahoma State, 43. So those, those numbers sound pretty good when you're talking about 133 teams in FBS. But when you talk about 69 power five teams, those are all below average power five teams. And so as we're looking at the most difficult schedules in the country, Iowa State comes in there at number three in the Big 12, but they're number 25 nationally um, for some of those reasons. So, again, I'm not – I hope it doesn't come off as defensive. Nope. I'm giving rationale for how we got here, gotcha. and now we can debate, do we like that? Do we agree with that? But, that again, that's my starting point for any type of, of, of view of a team. Okay. Uh, here's an interesting one. Just thought just thought about this when you were kind of do, do, having that ex, uh, excellent uh, explanation. Wisconsin. Okay. Um, to me, <laughs> this has got to be one of the toughest teams for Kelly Ford to, to predict and understand. Cause I tell you what, it's tough for Jeffrey, the Greek. I'll say that much. So roster management, right? Okay. So we, we know that they've got two really good running backs. We've seen it a couple wide receivers that have, you know, had success already when, when they've been in Madison, but now we have got an influx of new stuff all over the place. We think Tanner Mordecai is is a good quarterback, but he hasn't been at Wisconsin with with this offensive quarter and in 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 these conditions in this conference. You know, we've got a completely new schemes. Sure, we like Phil Longo. Phil Longo has got a lot of good things. We very much like Luke Fickle. You know, I I would screw up the saying, but something about you know the sum of the parts not being exactly the same. Like I can plug each one of these players and the wide receivers they've gotten in, but they've never played together before. This isn't Madden where you just pick up an awesome free agent, you know, or your rookie all of a sudden is better 
where there's just a number, you know, where a guy went from a 76 to an 86 and you just know that he's better. These are guys that, you know, players that we think are talented, they've never played in this system. So to me, that kind of is a demerit for each one of them individually until you get into the Kelly Ford season and see that Longo is actually pulling it together. I'm getting long-winded here, but is there something to that that you try to factor in the newness of a roster and, and with their staff? Yeah, Greg, I mean, you're hitting on a ton of salient points. You're absolutely right. Teams that are the, the most difficult teams to project in the preseason for, for myself, and I would venture to guess for most people out there who are doing power ratings, are ones where there's been a lot of turnover, whether that is with the players themselves or with the and or with the coaching staff. And you're absolutely right. There is a lot of new that brings in uncertainty, which a math person like me does not like, right? <laughs> but that's part of why we love college football is you get upsets all the time. There's uncertainty left and right, and you just never know what's going to happen. That's why we love this sport. But I think here's here's what I'd say. More times than not, absolutely agree with you. When you have uncertainty, your, your margin of error is increased, and the range of outcomes becomes more variable. For, for Wisconsin, that is certainly a factor here, given the the turnover they had on the roster. And then more importantly, I even think in this specific case with the coaching staff, because of the style of play that we've become accustomed to from Wisconsin, may be changing under Fickle. So that is absolutely something to be considered and something to, again, as you're looking at this and Kelly's saying, K Ford ratings are saying, hey, Wisconsin's power rated number 19. They've got a top 15 defense, top 50 offense. You know, there's a lot of uncertainty there maybe we downgrade them in our subjective view. I think that's that's perfectly acceptable and perfectly reasonable. USC last year gives us a great example. You said hmm. it's not mad. You don't plug and play. Agreed. 100%. And I was singing it louder than anybody probably last year about USC. And it made me look silly. What USC was able to accomplish last year. Now, I'm going to back up a little bit and say that turnover luck that they had yeah. is, is unsustainable. Um, and Iowa fans actually, Iowa fans probably a little bit something about turnover luck and, you know, just outstanding defense, turning defense into points and all that stuff. Um, but Iowa has done it year in and year out, so I think there's something there. USC did it one time. We'll see if they're able to do it again this year. But they are the now kind of – they're the they're the prime example, if you will, of a team who brought in a ton of new, both coaching staff and players. And there were some really shiny pieces that they brought in, obviously. You know, Heisman Trophy winner and Caleb Williams at the end of last year. He was just – of many that came in a high profile, they actually made it work. They mashed them all together. The schedule wasn't super difficult, but again, if you look at Wisconsin's, I have them with the 61st most difficult schedule in the country. I mean, that's mm. the, one of the top 10 easiest power five schedules out there. Um, easiest schedule in the, in the division of, of the West, uh, the big 10 this year by my number. So there's some similarities there. I'm not saying Wisconsin's going to be a game away from the CFP. I, that's not what I'm saying, but I, I am saying right now, I only have Wisconsin as a projected underdog in one game, and that's when Ohio State comes to town in week nine. So will Wisconsin go 11-1? and one? Highly doubtful. My numbers give that just a 10% chance of Wisconsin winning 11-plus regular season games. You're more likely looking by the numbers right now at, you know, nine and three probably. So Ohio, if you call, call Ohio State a loss, I don't know where the other two losses are. Maybe Minnesota at the end of the year. Maybe the West is on the line of that game. Maybe it's Iowa when Iowa. Well, it goes up to Camp Randall in week seven. Uh, they're looking ahead to a road trip to Illinois. I don't know. Illinois was a, was a surprise team last year. So all of those things need to be considered. I agree with your point. I do think that there was a, there's been a recent example of a team that's been able to make it work. We will see if Wisconsin falls into that camp or if they struggle this year, given all the new. All, all good explanations. Um, the one thing I would add is if you switched – let me see if I can explain this. In, in talking about USC um, – if all of that talent came in, but Caleb Williams didn't, uh, you, you, <laughs> even if it was a good quarterback, okay, Fair. just not Caleb Williams, I wonder how how good Fair. it would have been. Or have all of the exact same players with Caleb Williams, but you don't have Lincoln Riley. So to me, I think you're into the stratosphere of things working out perfectly that you had Lincoln Riley and Caleb Williams, because I think they're both elite as compared to the other quarterbacks and head coaches and, you know, play callers. So I think that's almost like USC was its own, its own test in and of itself. I agree with that. And they had the previous history at Oklahoma to get. So it's not just, Hey, they're both elite coming here. It's they're both elite and they already have a relationship. They already have a rapport. Right. So I agree. 
USC is an extreme example. I was just trying to outline one place that made it work, but you're right. Circumstances, probably not quite the same. Um, and that's why, again, I'm saying Wisconsin fans should not be expecting to be sitting there in late November, early December saying, hey, we win this game, we're going to the CFP. It could happen. I just said, there's a 10% chance they go 11-1. and one. And if they're 11-1, and one, make the Big Ten Championship game, pull off an upset against the team from the East, yeah, you're probably going to make the playoff. You know, a 12-1 and one Wisconsin Big Ten champion, Probably in the playoff, and that's within the realm of possibility. But um, I wouldn't go go bet a bunch of money on it. Uh, last thing I'll ask you is uh, to put you on the spot a little bit. One, two, maybe three, if you're feeling lucky. Big Ten teams that you have higher or lower rated with your data as compared to maybe the general public or other people pulling stuff together. A, f- a few of the outliers, like I don't think Michigan's going to be one of them, right? I think your data and where people have Michigan is probably pretty consistent where they're both somewhere in the top three, one, two, three, or four. Any other teams in the Big Ten that are that you feel that you're quite a bit different than your peers on how you view them? Yeah, l- let me just run down real quick my projected Big Ten standings here um, that I have up on the website. So in the East, you know, it could be considered a, a slight controversy. I'm projecting Ohio State over Michigan. I mean, people would say after the last two years, no, it's Michigan's and Ohio State has to go take it from them. That game's in Ann Arbor this year. So I've got Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State. Can I stop you right a- there? Can I stop yep. you right there? Because now yep. you just you just got me something else. Um, Uh-oh. I, well, that's something, right? I, I mean, we've seen yeah. Michigan, you know, two years ago, they beat Ohio State up pretty good. Now, last yeah. year was a good game, you know, like Michigan went away with it at the end. The other thing that I'm curious about is the overall roster and talent and stars and how it works in. I, this is something we've said on the Eyes on Big Podcast. Like, we know that Ohio State is elite and we are kind of, you know, picking nits here, but is it going to play in when it seems like too much of the roster talent is in one spot, AKA the wide receiver room where it's not spread out more to, I don't know, you know, the linebackers and secondary. Is that maybe an example where you are kind of waiting too much in the overall roster of Ohio state as, as compared to Michigan? Um, Many people out there, I would say that's a reasonable question to, or that's a reasonable approach to say, hey, what about this? The way that I actually do my weighted recruiting rankings is I'm not just counting up stars or doing the averages of all these services. I have my own kind of roster profile. And so to me, for Ohio State, if they bring another five-star wide receiver, that's great. But he's not going to be a massive impact kind of player because Ohio State's already loaded at receiver. If we say Ohio State's O-line is, you know, that's an area that they could upgrade and they bring in a five star that player is going to get a lot more credit in my recruiting rankings than the another five star receiver so i would say that you are absolutely correct in that line of questioning i have to this point in my kind of model building adjusted for that and tried to account for that the best i can i'm not saying it's perfect by any means no model is uh, mine included but yes that's something that you need to consider and if you're if you out there you have a model out there and you're not i would strongly encourage you to do so because you're right that's a huge piece that can absolutely make a difference now now if we're talking about let me just look at it real quick since we're talking Ohio State Michigan specifically if we're looking at it again I know what the results have been on the field and you're right two years ago Ohio State got taken to the woodshed last year you could argue Ohio State was unlucky not to win the game Michigan ran away with it you're absolutely right too many big plays that Ohio State gave up on defense without a doubt um and there's pressure on Ohio State they need to beat Michigan this year if they want to continue to say you know know we're the class of the big 10 because right now that title belongs to michigan and i don't think it's i don't think it's necessarily that close but if we're looking at the areas i just talked about the weighted four-year recruiting rankings i've got ohio state number three nationally i've got michigan number 14 so again that's not terrible i mean they're both right up there that's not a huge difference but there's a little bit of a gap between those two there if we're looking at the weighted four-year k forward rating I've got Ohio State number two, so actually a little bit better than their recruiting ranking. And I've got Michigan number seven, so significantly better from 14 to seven than their recruiting ranking. So Ohio State grades out better in both of those areas than Michigan. Now, Michigan's going to grade out better this year in returning production. They brought back an absolute ton of talent, uh, especially at key positions for last year's team, which, of course, won the Big Ten and, and made the college football playoff. So 
those two teams are going to be really, really good. I mean, I'm separating them here. I've got Ohio State number two, Michigan number four. That game for me right now is currently about a field goal projected spread. And, you know, so that's a, that's a toss-up game. But that is a little bit of a controversy maybe if you're asking where are your numbers different sure. than, than yep. the perception. I've got Ohio State, then Michigan, Penn State. That's the clear cut upper echelon, not just of the East, but of the Big Ten by my numbers. Those are top 10 teams. The next team in my numbers is Wisconsin at 19. They're in the West, of course. In the East, after that, you know, Michigan State and Maryland are mid-40s, and then Indiana and Rutgers are hovering around 80. So I don't think there's too much discrepancy in the East outside of, you know, people might say Michigan should be ahead of Ohio State. In the West is where it's a little trickier. Um, And so that's just because the Big Ten West is tricky. Uh, I mean, it's kind of like what the old ACC Coastal was. Like, it's just you don't know who's going to come out of it. And so for me, the way I've stacked them up right now, in terms of power rating and projected finish, I've got Wisconsin and, and Iowa top two. Wisconsin 19, Iowa 26. And then I've actually, based on the schedule, I've got Illinois just slightly ahead of Minnesota in the projected standings. It's actually because Minnesota just plays a much more difficult schedule than, I, difficult. Illinois, yep. than Illinois by my numbers. Minnesota's actually power rated about 10 spots better than Minnesota, but they flip in the projected standings because of the schedules. So those two, you could go back and forth about who, who, which one's there kind of between, you know, number three and number four. I'd even lump Iowa and Wisconsin into that grouping. I mean, I think any of those four could realistically win the Big the Big Ten West, um, but I was, I'm making Wisconsin the favorite for now. And then after that, I've got Nebraska and Purdue kind of there in the mid-50s. And then Northwestern, I got them at number 82 right now. And that's not accounting for everything that's going on at Northwestern. And we don't have to dive into all but just suffice to say, 82 is probably giving too much credit to Northwestern, given what they're dealing with in that program at this specific moment in time, this close to the season. So yeah. um, they were already behind the eight ball a little bit in terms of talent and what we're looking at. And now you throw that into the mix. Um, it could could be a long year for for Wildcat fans. But so I don't know. I mean, you tell me, Greek, what, yeah. what, what am I off based on the perception? Because no. I'll be honest, I kind of get blinders on when I do mine. I, I I compare mine with other benchmark power ratings that I've identified as the ones that I really respect and think are great. Um, and, and I'm usually not too far off. I have a couple outliers here or there, and then I figure out, okay, why? Like, why am I higher on this team or lower on this team? But none of the Big Ten teams stand out to me from from what I've looked at with my benchmarking. Um, but yeah, what national perception-wise or, or conference no. perception yep. sound reasonable? It sounds reasonable. And, and it, you actually are winding up where I typically go with my own rankings in my head, which is trying to get people to understand. I don't think there's a big difference between having a team one and three, uh, but I put gaps in between teams one and three, then a gap, then yeah. four or five, you know, and, and I do this during the season where I rank the teams in the big 10 as they're moving up and down. So to me, I might put, a line or two between, you know, group two and three or one and two, because to me, that's where like, don't worry so much that you're five and seven or or six, because to me, those three teams are essentially the same. So I think we're there. Okay. Last, last thing uh, that I want to talk about just to get your take on what you think. So I, I put a tweet out about a week ago and what it was is my order of importance for predicting each big 10 team, AKA college football team. So really quick, number one, coaching, coaching situation, number two, quarterback, Number three, D-line, front seven. Number four, your schedule, which obviously we just talked about a bunch. Number five, O-line. Six, receivers. That's wide receivers or tight ends. Number seven, special teams. Eight, DBs. Nine, running backs. Is there anything in your formula? And again, you don't have to go too deep, but is it fair to say a team that has a stronger quarterback in front seven uh, is going to factor in better than a team that maybe is got good receivers and defensive backs, but you feel is much weaker along the lines. Is that something that also factors in to the Kelly Ford experience? Yeah. So I, this is great. I, I really like this question and, and, and this kind of train of thought. Um, I do have, you know, when I'm looking, man, when you're looking at production, returning a quarterback <clears throat> is different than returning a right guard. Um, you know, so like they account for wins, if you will, they, they contribute to wins differently and that's that's something that i'm constantly tweaking and playing with and back testing what's the right kind of mix what's the right weighting here and so this question is kind of along those lines what i would say based on what you just said there uh stopping short of giving like my exact order which i maybe i can come back to with a tweet or something in the future after yep. i thought about it more but just off the top 
I would I would have quarterback number one. So I know I said I'm not going to give an order, but to me, I'd put quarterback even above coaching. I'm not going to disagree that coaching is super important, especially situational. And some coaches are just, you know, there is data to support. You are a better coach than coach X is better than coach Y because this, this, and this. I'll give you that. But quarterbacks to me are going to be number one. I'm going to have I'm going to have DBs uh, higher on the list than you. you got a number eight. I would certainly have them, you know, in the top half uh, of that. So that's one that sticks out mm-hmm. to me. Um, I'd have special teams in the, in the bottom half, um, which probably is not what uh, Iowa or South Carolina <laughs> fans want to hear because you guys are so good at special teams. Um, but but I agree with kind of your placing of that. Schedule's probably in about the right spot, kind of in the middle there. Um, schedule makes a huge – it's a huge deal. Um, people don't really realize – and that's why we're talking about Florida, having the most difficult schedule by my numbers and by a lot of metrics out there. Florida is in – they're in a tough spot because – they're a good team. Napier's really still trying to get it rolling and his vision and all that. But that schedule is just so brutal that, you know, if they win seven games this year, I'd celebrate that if I'm a Florida fan. Whereas they're going to say, hey, seven and five, that's not what Florida's about. Well, man, that schedule is just tough. So schedule's about right. I think O-line and D-line, absolutely. You've got them kind of in the right spots there. I'd keep running backs down low. And coaching, I'd probably have more towards the middle. Hmm. Um, so, hmm. yeah. So to, to summarize, I guess, my random thoughts here, I would have quarterbacks number one. I put DBs, not, not necessarily in order, but kind of to use your uh, terminology of let's draw a line. So I've quarterback yeah. line, and yeah. DBs, receivers, and, and, and tight ends to a lesser extent, but definitely the receivers, um, they're in there. Over O-line and front so, seven. So I'll put – so, so mm, O-line and front seven, I'm going to I'm gonna put them – I'm not even going to draw a line. Like – I'm kind of giving away the order a little bit, but I'm not going to draw a line. They can be in that second tier grouping. So quarterback, draw line, DB, receivers, O-line, D-line, both within that next one. Then I'm drawing a line. I'm going to call it schedule right there. Um, I'm going to draw a line, and I guess that leaves me with what's left of coaching, running backs, and special teams um, for what we're looking at here. I will say to defend running backs, because I probably haven't defended them through my lack of commentary, and I didn't really argue where you had them to defend running backs, in my opinion, at the college level and ex- a explosive, efficient, elite running back is significantly more valuable to his team and his team's success than an elite, explosive, efficient running back in the NFL. Yes. I think that there is still in the college game, there is still a, a, a value attached to an elite running back. And, and then, I'm not saying that running backs are the end all be all. And there's, you know, some running backs are kind of interchangeable or replaceable in college football. But if you got an elite one, that guy is going to be able to do more for your team than if you had the elite running back in the NFL and what he's able to do for his team. Of course, you still want him. You want the best at every position. But I think the value of a running back in college is still significant, whereas the argument could probably be made and, well, has been made, and you're seeing it with contract negotiations even now with my Indianapolis Colts. John. Jonathan Taylor, Wisconsin running back. There you go. Right, right. Back to the Big Ten. Yep. Um, you're seeing what the value is there. So that's probably where I draw those lines. Um, and it it hurts me to to not say O line, D line are are the are up there to be the most important because if I'm building a team myself, they're probably the ones that I'm focusing on right after quarterback. Like just me, my personal mentality, philosophy, what have you. As a as someone who's a fan, you know, I played little football when I was young I didn't even play at high school or anything football was not my sport of choice so also I was never you know huge and not gonna be able to do that so I'm not the expert in building a football team if I was going to do it though I'd have them up there but the data supports um DBs and receivers if you have really good ones in those areas if you can if you can shut down the opposing receivers and if your receivers can get separation and make big plays yep it's actually more that's actually more beneficial than having an elite offensive or defensive line. And, and yeah, oh, you better protect your quarterback and you better be able to get after their quarterback. All of these things are important, but if we have to really prioritize them, the data, as far as what I have found and what I kind of use, supports those you know players out there on the islands. If you can beat your man one-on-one, that's a huge advantage. Yes. And last thing I would just add, because you did a great job explaining it, is is – I had a I had a direct message conversation with a, a listener on the podcast um, and said, "Listen, obviously Ohio State and their wide receivers 
they're where I have receivers ranked, it would rank higher for them because when you have players that elite, it, it, it makes a gigantic difference. Now, when you have an elite player, you talked about running back, same thing. What is interesting is that, you know, number one, not so much, not so interesting, but only so many teams have access to those amazing players, you know, like shoot white uh, Ohio state's a freaking vacuum for the top wide receivers in the country right now. Uh, that, that, that's not such a hard thing to grasp. I think the harder thing is that it's tougher to find a bad running back than it is a bad quarterback. There's always three or four good running backs on the roster, very rarely elite running backs, but there's always two or three, but boy, we can go from a quality starting quarterback to a bad quarterback in one play. You just don't have that. So, you know, the, the kind of agreed upon depth that you just always get at the positions plays into it as well. Yep. Well, let's go ahead and wrap it up right there. Kelly, I hope you had as much fun as I did on these topics. This this was a blast to talk through talk through some of this stuff. No, Greek, this was amazing. Had a great time. I appreciate you having me on. Always fun talking college football and specifically Big Ten. You know, I'm I'm a Big Ten guy too at heart from you know in Indiana. I always lived here. So Definitely uh, get behind the Big, Big Ten. Love to see Big Ten teams do well. This was a lot of fun. And um, I, I really enjoyed your perspective, your challenging of me. Again, I, I'm open to it. People on yep. Twitter who get after me, if you do it in a – if you're not, like, trying to be antagonistic, I'm all for it. I'm there for the good conversation. It's where you start throwing out, you know, this is trash or F you. And I'm like, all right, well, <laughs> you're not engaging. But this was fun. A good, healthy debate on – how we prioritize things, how we view college football teams. I had a great time. So I appreciate you having me on. Awesome. Did you hear that college football fans? He's he's an open guy. He's willing to have a conversation. It's not a quote that maybe is uh, pertinent to the movie I watched tonight. Now I am become death, the destroyer of worlds. That's not what Kelly's about. Kelly's about open conversation. So Kelly Ford, thanks for coming on the Eyes on Big podcast. For Big Kurt and Jeffrey the Greek, we'll talk to you soon.